Good morning. This, you know, is our last lesson in the book of Judges. And uh, in January, we'll be taking up the, uh, the book of Ruth. Most all of you know that this is the text which years ago uh, I preached on it in our old building, and I had four men decline to read it. And uh, if you read it carefully, you'll know exactly why that is true. I commend Ronnie. He is one of my favorite readers, and if anybody could have read the text well, uh, he would have done it. But I, uh, I looked around our audience this morning, and, and my conclusion was that there may be some things which we would not particularly prefer to have our children here, and, uh, and so I, I asked him to stop at verse 21, and I hope you will understand that. Um, but it is, it is a powerful text, and it really does speak to us in many ways. I, I don't suppose that most of you uh, have the same feeling that I do as you approach this text, but any preacher these days who preaches this text may be in trouble. Now, that's definitely true in other parts of the world. You may go to jail for preaching what this text teaches. And, and so that's just the reality of life. It may be in years to come that there's going to be problems for me because of what happens and what I do with this text. That's just the way the chips fly. But you understand, this is not the kind of text that one takes lightly uh, in, in a variety of ways. And as I mentioned earlier, we need to be careful about the appropriateness of dealing with it in a, in a mixed uh, audience, especially with younger listeners. We are, I think, very clearly, uh, the author wants us to understand this text in the light of Genesis chapter 19 and the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. When, uh, when studies have been done that indicate that there is much of the vocabulary, many of the same words that are used from Sodom and Gomorrah's story in Genesis 19 are found here. So we need to keep that in mind. With one caveat, do not make the mistake of thinking that they're identical accounts. I think that's something that I've overlooked until recently in my study there are some significant or is a significant difference in our text from Sodom and Gomorrah. And if we miss it, I think we may fail to see something that the author intends for us to see. In this text, and in particular in Genesis chapter 19, there are, of course, strong efforts to prove that the text is not about homosexuality and is not condemning it. Generally speaking, those who take that tack want to say that it's all about hospitality. Now, there is something about hospitality in our text. Let's not miss that fact. But, but I mean, here are the guys, and it's as though it's like the welcome wagon comes to your neighborhood and they knock on the door and said, we'd like to get to know you a little better. You know, and you're saying, forget that, folks. It's idiotic to read this text or Genesis 19 in any way but what it plainly says. And you don't offer uh, the welcome wagon folks your virgin daughter and your concubine uh, uh, as some kind of an alternative to what they're asking if they're not asking for the most horrendous thing. 
So let's, let's set that aside. By the way, the feminists are also having a heyday with these texts, uh, trying to prove how primitive and crass men are in taking care of themselves at women's expense. Now, let me go on to say, there are some really crummy men in the book of Judges, and I am not sanctifying anything those guys do. But it is not saying... This text is not saying this is God's ideal for men and their view of women. This text is saying exactly the opposite. Look how far men have fallen. And it's evidenced in their view of and treatment of women. The text is not in chronological order. And actually that's true of both uh, elements of this conclusion. When you look at the, at the text with the Levite uh, who goes and joins up and becomes a priest for the Danites, and it's v- at the very end of that ch- chapter 18 that it tells us that the, pr- the Levite's name was Jonathan, and from a simple reading of the text, we would conclude he is the grandson of Moses. Now, when you read this text, you will notice that in chapter 20, it will talk about Phineas, verse 28, the son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, was serving the Lord in those days. In other words, Aaron's grandson is serving in those days. The point is this, unless you want to stretch it out, and I see no reason to do that, what you need to understand is the author isn't concerned about starting with the earliest event and ending with the latest event in the period of the judges. He has a thematic scheme, and what he's saying is it goes from bad at the beginning to worse at the end. And so these two accounts are accounts that happen relatively early in the period of the judges. And so what that says is it may be as early as a 100 years after Moses that Israel has reached the point that they are, how quickly men fall and how far they fall. This text is certainly uh, speaking to that. The structure of the text. When you look at this, you've got three chapters, and obviously I, I'm not going to linger long uh, if you want the roast not to burn. I'm not going to linger long in any of them for a lot of reasons, one of which is who wants to stay there and simmer in this dust for very long. But the first one is really about hospitality and horror. That is, it's about the story of this man coming to Gibeah with his concubine and his servant and, and being horribly uh, treated by the Benjamites, who are some of the Benjamites living in Gibeah. And that, of course, sets off the sequence of events that we will see, the atrocity of the uh, the Levite uh, dealing with his concubine's body in a way that is just horrifying, the events then that happen in chapter 20, where you see the civil war, and now all of Israel is assembled against Benjamin. And actually, with a greater zeal, than you see them fighting the Canaanites. They are now attacking each other, fighting amongst each other to where they nearly decimate one tribe. And then finally, the aftermath of that is that when you kill off that many Benjamites, you're now down to 600 Benjamite men, and you don't have enough wives for, for these men. And so now, what do you do? <laughs> 
to keep a tribe going. And so you have, we could call it wives for the wicked or brides for Benjamin, Benjamites. But the reality is, how do you solve the problem of a, of a tribe that is nearly at the point of extinction? How Israel does that is very, very significant for us. And again, just to, to make it clear, this is the second conclusion. Two conclusions, just as there are two introductions to the book of Judges. And it is my contention that when you compare these two conclusions together, it's one of the keys to understanding what the author is trying to get to us. We look at the first conclusion, and that is, how does Israel respond to the idolatry that takes place with this Levite becoming the personal priest of a Danite who has his house of idols? I mean, that's about as bad as you can get, idolatry-wise. How does Israel respond to that in comparison to how Israel responds to the atrocities that take place at Gibeah? That should be our clue. So let's go to the hospitality at Bethlehem in that first section, chapter 19, from hospitality to horror, hospitality at Bethlehem. You have to say that this first story, and especially if you, if you remember last week, what I called Micah's bed and breakfast, you know, Micah seemed like everybody came by and stopped, stopped by for breakfast, spent the night. Hey, this is really something, is it not? I mean, would you not like to have a host like this? You know, what's the old saying that a guest is like a fish after three days it stinks? Hey, this guy's just getting warmed up in three days. He comes, you remember, he has has taken a concubine uh, from Bethlehem of Judah, and she has left him, texts vary. Uh, And I think if I remember, Ronnie, in the NIV, it says that she was unfaithful to him. That's my way of, of understanding that term. Uh, others would say she's mad at him. Well, she may have been, but it seems to me that it's her infidelity that the text is trying to point out. She goes off to her uh, father in Bethlehem, and she is there four months, and now he is going to co- come and try and, and uh, persuade her. It reminds me of Samson and his goat. Do you remember when he's going to go sweet talk his bride that he stomped off and left at the altar because he was mad about the fact that she had found out his secret and told the, the riddle to the men? And, and it seems to me now that he's in the mood for love and he's on his way back to sweet talk. The text literally says he plans to speak to her heart. Now I want to tell you folks, if there is anybody in the Bible who isn't romantic, it is this jerk. I mean, this guy is not romantic. I don't know what he said to her. She welcomes him into her father's home. The father-in-law welcomes him, has him there for three days. And you remember then the fourth day, he's all ready to go. And, and the father-in-law says, well, you know, look, it's, it's early in the morning. Why don't you have a good breakfast? You know, you want to get a good start to the day. And then pretty soon it's lunchtime. Well, you know, wait until lunch is over. And, and, and so anyway, he talks him into the fourth day. Fifth day comes, and now the, the Levites, I think, getting good and ready to get back home, and, and uh, so the father-in-law starts the same thing. Well, you know, have a, have a good breakfast, get strength for the day, and, and then you can leave as soon as you're ready. And anyway, he puts him off to the afternoon, and so now the issue is, where will he be able to uh, be, not being able to get all the way home, where can he spend the night 
And remember, too, that this is a time when Israel does not possess or control all of the territory, Jebus being an example of that. That's Jerusalem, but it's now under the control of the Jebusites. So the issue is, where can we go within the land? Remember, too, that the Israelites were to conquer the Canaanites and drive them out and kill them all. So it isn't as though you're going to go to a Canaanite city and knock on the door and say, Hi, I'd like a room for the night. You know, and when I get a chance, I'm going to kill you. So there was genuine concern. Where are they going to go? And so they set out on their way. And you notice then uh, that uh, now they come into that second part, which is the horror that takes place at Gibeah in verses 11 through 26. They don't want to stop at a foreign city. And, and here they are, they're coming by Jebus, coming by Jerusalem. They could have stopped there. The night is starting to come upon them. Evening is coming. The servant says, why don't we stop here? And, and the Levite is saying, nope, we don't want to stop anywhere but in an Israelite town. Why? Because he expected that in an Israelite town, they would be taken in as guests. They would be given the hospitality of the home and the protection of the home. If there was anywhere safe to stay, it's going to be in an Israelite home. That's the assumption of, of the Levite. Unfortunately, his assumptions don't uh, prove to be true. So when they finally arrive at Gibeah, night is now falling. They come and they stand in the city square, which would have been the place, you remember, when the angels came to the, uh, to the uh, city of, of, of Sodom, uh, cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, and they stood in the square. Lot sees them and says, you don't want to spend the night here. You want to spend it in the safety of my home. They expected somebody to take them in. Nobody offered them hospitality. Finally, a man who was a sojourner, just as Lot was in Sodom, a sojourner comes along, an older man, he passes by, he sees them, he's from the Ephraimite hill country as well, and he says to them, where are you heading, where do you come from, you know, where are you going, and he's trying to figure out how he can be of help to them. Now that's where the, uh, the, the Levite begins to gild the lily. You'll miss the point, I think, of this story if you don't see how rotten the Levite is. You got the two concluding stories are both about Levites, and neither of them comes out looking good, and we should not see them that way. So the Levite says to him uh, that he is he's from the hill country. He says, I had business in Bethlehem. Well, that's true. But we know what kind of business it was, right? He, he doesn't say, I had to go retrieve my concubine who ran away from me. So it, you know, it makes it sound like he's a salesman selling farm equipment or something. He sort of said less than he has to. Now at this point, he doesn't have to tell them the whole the ugly story, but it's only the beginning of the problem. Then he says, and it depends on your translation, he says, but now I'm heading, some translations read, home. I don't buy that at all. Now, you have to understand the Masoretic text is the Hebrew text. The Septuagint is the Greek text. There are times when the Hebrew text may have been corrupted or they may have a problem. And it is possible that the Septuagint has it right and the Hebrew text doesn't. 
But my assumption is always, I'm putting my money on the Hebrew text. The Hebrew text says, I am going to the house of the Lord. Now, folks, if you want to have a pious mission, then you're going to say that, aren't you? He's a Levite. He's a priest. What could be more important than a Levite getting back to his job at the house of the Lord? Isn't who would who would keep a Levite from his duties? To me, he's telling a falsehood because he wants to make his mission look as good as he can. And the deception is not over. He's just warming up in, in what he has to say. So he then says, now it's not an issue of having resources. I don't need people to give me food. I've got food and provisions. I've got provisions for my animals. All I need is a roof over my head. I think that much was true. But of course, in that uh, situation, his host is not going to, to stand for that. And so he says, nope, you'll, you'll come to my house and I'll take care of all of your needs. That's where our reading of the text um, ended, but it's not where the story ends, is it? Now, take a very close look in, in the translation I'm using, in the Net Bible, it says, verse 22, they were having a good time when suddenly, get this word, some men of the city, some good-for-nothings surrounded the house and kept beating on the door. So how many people do you think we're talking about? Well, we're not talking about the entire city of Gibeah. Now, go back with me to Genesis chapter 19. I told you there are many parallels between the Genesis 19 story and the... uh, and the text in, in uh, Judges chapter 19. Look at, look at uh, Genesis chapter 19, verse 4. And verse 5 is the one I have in mind in particular. Before they could lie down to sleep, all the men, both young and old, from every part of the city of Sodom, surrounded the house. They shouted to Lot, where are the men who came out to you? Men, plural. Where are the men who came bring them out to us, and so on. And you know the the rest of that story. My point is, the author is very clear to say that in Sodom, it is not a few worthless uh, individuals who are coming and beating on the door. It is the city who is beating at the door. Everybody, young and old, he makes a very, very clear point of the fact, young and old, you know, the whole spectrum of the city is there, which tells you the whole city ought to go. And it's no surprise to us that the judgment of God would fall upon that entire city and everyone would be destroyed. My point is, when you look at our text, it does not say that. It says, in effect... There are some worthless people there. I don't want to give you percentages or numbers. It's not the entire city. There are worthless people. They somehow have the the sanctuary, so to speak, of carrying out their wickedness, and the city is surely culpable for that. But I'm just saying to you, it is not the entire city who is involved in the immorality uh, that these particular men were engaged in. So then they say, notice, send out the man who came to visit you. Not men. 
Now, remember also that he has a servant, and they, often the translations will indicate the word that's used for servant is a young a lad or a young man. Isn't it interesting to, to you, at least it is to me, why are they selective about this Levite and nobody else? Why is it that they want him, and yet there are other males that are, that are inside the house? That doesn't make sense to me. When I go back to Sodom and Gomorrah, the, the, seemingly it was, it was much more collective than that. So they demand it, and, and here's you know, if you want to think highly of somebody, it just doesn't work, does it? Here's this guy, and you're thinking, oh, at last, you know, the whole city is is inhospitable. Nobody takes this guy in. And now here's this old man from the hill country of Ephraim, and he invites him in. And you're thinking, oh, man, what a nice guy. And then he says, oh, please, don't think about this wickedness. Here's my virgin daughter and his concubine. Take them. There is no way to justify that, folks. There is no way biblically to justify how someone who is responsible to protect and care for the women of their household, how they can do that. This is telling us how bad it was. Now, I think the same is true for Lot. I'm not going to the wall for Lot. He may have been righteous in the sense that he believed in God, but but there's a lot of things lacking with Lot as well. So when I read things like this, I don't minimize them. This is a terrible thing, and the author is not trying to make men look good. In fact, he's doing just the opposite. So here's the man offering the, the daughter and the concubine and that's the point at which, when, when all comes down to the final analysis, the Levite takes his concubine, throws her out the door, and, and leaves her, as it were, to all of the abuses. And you know, then she comes crawling back. Her hands are on the threshold. What an awful, ugly picture. But here's the point at which, again, I want you to notice the fine qualities of this Levite. Here's your priesthood. After a hundred years or so, after Moses and Aaron, here is your priesthood. Opens the door, sounds like he almost stumbles over her. And what's his first words? You know, have, <laughs> how was your day? You know, anything, it's get up, let's go. I mean, doesn't that just make you want to just batter this guy and say, what is with him? And then when she doesn't respond, then he packs her up on the, on, on the donkey, packs her home, and, and then he decides that he uh, needs to send a parcel post to everybody in, in Israel. I mean, this is, this is incredible. Now, if you remember Saul, when, when the, uh, when the uh, Ammonites were attacking the people of Jabesh Gilead and Saul heard about it, he cut up an ox and sent it around. You know, well, you can understand that. But, but what he did with this woman is just unfathomable. Now, it did achieve what he had in mind. It did really rattle the troops. No other time in the history of the judges do you have that much unity where all the tribes assemble, or nearly everybody assembles for battle, uh, as you find here. <coughs> and people say then, nothing like this has happened 
since the beginning. In other words, since we left Egypt, since we've been a nation, this is the worst thing that has ever happened in our history. It does make you want to know, what's the worst part? The, the atrocities that took place or the atrocity that took place from the hand of the Levite. So that's where you come to the section on uh, civil war that we see in chapter 20. He has certainly got the attention of the nation. They have assembled together. And while we won't go into detail, there's a sort of a short view and a long view. There's a sort of a summary statement about what happens. And then he goes into greater detail. But we'll just talk about the generalities of what takes place. The Israelites assemble. And what I'm most interested in is the Levites' explanation of what happens. He says... Uh, notice in, in chapter uh, 20 and verse 4, because the people are basically saying, all right, you've done this now. What is it you're trying to tell us? So here he gets to tell his story about what happened back at Gibeah. He says, I and my concubine stopped in Gibeah in the territory of Benjamin to spend the night. True. The leaders of Gibeah attacked me. True or false? No. Some of the worthless fellows in Gibeah attacked. And by the way, the attack wasn't really so much an attack on him. And then he says, and they wanted to kill me. Well, that wasn't really exactly what was going on either. And what what I'm saying is, this Levite is painting a picture that makes him look good. And it makes the whole city of Gibeah look bad. The end result is you're going to see virtually an entire tribe on the edge of extinction because of this man's account of what happened. And I'm telling you, this man's account is not honest and it's not accurate. Here's a Levite who of all people ought to be standing for the truth, but he's already gilding the lily and making it look other than it was. They wanted to kill me. Instead, they abused my concubine. No matter that he threw her out. That part is not in the the the, uh, the accounting of what took place. All I'm saying is, I don't like this guy at all. And you shouldn't either. And he's a Levite. So we have two conclusions, two Levites, and they are both a horrible mess. Am I saying that Israel isn't a mess? No, I'm just saying this guy is really something else. So that brings us to the battles that take place. Israel asked the question, isn't it interesting? Who will go up for us first? Where have you heard that question before? In chapter 1, when they were deciding who would go against the Canaanites, and the answer was the same, Judah will go up first. Now, when God says for them to go to battle, he does not promise them victory until the third time after two defeats. But here you have 400,000 Israelites. Now, I'm not saying that every one of those necessarily went into battle, but that's who had mustered. 400,000 Israelites, and you have, uh, I think, 26,000 uh, Benjamites that are, that are gathered for war. So the initial 
confrontation, Israel takes a blow with all of their heavy uh, weaponry, uh, heavy uh, military strength. Twenty-two thousand of the Israelites die. They weep and they and they consult with God and they go back to battle. Still no promise of victory. And now the second time, 18,000 people die. Now, there are lots of reasons why I think God allowed the defeats. But one of my first guesses is that God often brought about defeat because of sin. And trust me, it wasn't just the Levite who was in sin, and it wasn't just Benjamites who were in sin, and we know that from the larger context. It may well have been that. The other thing that happens is, because there have been two previous defeats, two previous victories for the Benjamites, they're now getting cocky. And that's the perfect setup, so that when they consult with God, and now he says that they are to go to battle, and he will give them the victory... Now they prepare an ambush. So they start their attack. And by the way, if you look at the account, it looks to me like what happens is the Israelites begin to converge upon the city of of Gibeah. The Gibeonites actually attack Israel in both the two previous accounts. This thing happens again. They're saying, hey, we've whipped these guys. Let's go clean up and get it over with. And so they go on the attack. The Israelites... Uh, look like they may be losing. They lose 30 guys at this point. And they start to, to retreat. The Gibeonites come out of their city, and that's when the ambush goes in, takes the city, sets it on fire, and all of a sudden the Gibeonites look and they recognize their city's gone, their protection's gone, and they, they begin to flee. And, you know, it ends up that just a few hundred of them are remaining by the time the battle is over. That brings us to the brides for the brothers in chapter uh, 21. The, The tribe of Benjamin has nearly been decimated. They are almost at the stage of extinction. And the Israelites have gone about this with a certain amount of zeal. Now, this is what I... It isn't buyer's remorse. I call it righteous remorse in the sense that they seemingly have been acting righteously and now they wish they hadn't. They're thinking about what they've done, and they're saying, oh my goodness, we, we've, we've almost destroyed an entire tribe. What are we going to do now? And, and in fact, the way they describe it, it's God has destroyed this tribe. What are we going to do now? So the Israelites are not going to look good uh, to you in chapter 21 if you're reading the chapter the way uh, I am. And basically, the whole chapter hinges upon two oaths. We've seen oaths before in the book of Judges with with Jephthah and so on. But two oaths. The first oath was this. We will never give a Benjamite one of our daughters for a wife. Now, if you assumed what they assumed about Benjamites, you wouldn't give them your daughter either, would you? I mean, that's a pretty reasonable thing to say is no daughters of ours are going to marry any son of theirs uh, if they're as as bad as they have been painted to be. That was oath number one. The second oath was anybody who hasn't joined with us in battle, we're going to go and destroy them. 
We're going to take them out just like the enemy. So they got those two oaths and they're, and they're swinging on this in terms of how is it that we can possibly get around the dilemma that we have? How can we save, I almost wanted to say saving private Benjamin, but somehow I just couldn't get myself to do it. So, but how can we save the Benjamites given what we've done and given what we've said? How do they get around it? Well, the first thing they say is, all right, the second oath will get us past the first oath. We said no daughters of ours will marry any sons of theirs. Okay, who made that covenant? Everybody that assembled. Well, who didn't assemble? Well, that was the people of Jabesh Gilead. And so they go in and they annihilate Jabesh Gilead and they keep 400 virgins. And they give them, but that's not quite enough brides to really make it work. So now they say to themselves, well, what will we do next? Somebody has this genius idea. See, they said, we will not give any of our daughters. And so now they, I mean, aren't they parsing words? Haven't you heard these kinds of things before? It depends on what the word is, is. And, and so here you are parsing your, your things. Well, we said give, so we'll tell them to take. So they counsel with the Benjamites and say, look, there's going to be this festival and the little girls are going to be dancing. The, the virgins will be dancing at this festival. And so you guys hide out in the vineyards, steal one. Just steal one. And when the fathers go to the defense of their daughters, we're going to say, back off. You promised you wouldn't give your daughter, but you didn't say that someone couldn't take her. Now, think about this. And and I think this is where you have to understand. This is not, you know, they're going and they're dancing in the field and somebody grabs this little lovely girl by the hand and they dance off to the sound of music, you know, into the, the, the tulips. They grab these young girls and they do to them, they do to them something similar to what was done to this man's concubine. This is not consensual. It is not friendly. And get this, folks. These people who are so incensed at the indecency of the Benjamites are now setting up and facilitating something very similar with respect to those women. Is that not just a turn of events that leaves you saying, wait a minute, this thing does not smell fine. It shouldn't. It shouldn't. So that in that sense, here you have these pious Israelites so concerned about the righteousness of God and purity among them, and, and they go up at their task, then they, then they regret having done so, and so now they, they wordsmith their oaths so that they can get a set of them, and then they end up orchestrating this, this kidnapping of young women to be the wives, and you're saying, this is just not a pretty picture. It is not a pretty picture. So, what do we say in conclusion? I would agree that hospitality is not the main point, and so those who would try to avoid the whole subject of homosexuality are, are really missing, I think, the point of the text. But I will say this. This text does say something about hospitality and the lack of it. And isn't it interesting that a city and that a people who have departed from God 
are a people who have no compassion on strangers. The law is clear about that. Abraham greets the strangers, remember, as they're on their way. He doesn't know who they are. When Abraham is looking for a wife for his son, he wants to find somebody, and the servant wants to find somebody who shows hospitality to strangers. It's a sad thing. It's a sad thing when the people of God fence themselves off from their neighbors. And so surely there is something to say to us about hospitality. And surely there is something to say to us about homosexuality. Is there any question in anybody's mind that this text is addressing the subject and that this text says it is woefully wrong? I don't know how you can come away from this text without saying it is a terrible, terrible sin. And it should rightly be judged. But my point is, it's not the only sin. As a matter of fact, when you look at what actually happened, in other words, if you look at the actual crime, it wasn't the crime of those men against that Levite. It was a crime of those men against his concubine. So you have to say, it's a sin, it's not the only sin, and certainly the Levite has his own share in terms of his severity, in terms of putting his concubine out there uh, to take the, the heat for him and so on. It's a horrible thing. And there's this selective judgment. Here's the thing I want to do. Now, I want to put conclusion number one alongside of conclusion number two. We said two Levites in Israel at about the same period of time. Levite number one uh, is in need of a job. He's unemployed. He goes seeking. He first of all becomes Micah's personal priest so that he can work and his tool shop is a house of idols. And then he goes to become the priest for an entire tribe uh, or at least a segment of that tribe of the Danites. Now, what does the Bible say that Israel should think about that And what is it the Bible says about what they should do about that? Deuteronomy 13 is crystal clear. If they even heard a rumor that such a thing was going on, they should have gone and they should have destroyed that city, just like we see the destruction taking place in our text. And what did they do? Nothing. Nothing. Now you come to our text... Levite number two. And the allegations, which are not really accurate, there's certainly truth to the evil, but they're not altogether accurate. The allegation that the whole city was involved in this sin, and surely I should say at this point, the Benjamites were not right to side with their sinful brothers. They, they became participants at that moment in time. But the reality is you had a segment of them. What happens? All of a sudden, everybody's righteous indignation is fired up and they want blood. And they're going in and they're killing people right and left. Don't you see just a little incongruity in that? Or let's call it what it is. Hypocrisy. Is it not true in the church today that we have sins that we love to hate Sins that we love to hate, and generally speaking, they're sins that other people do, but we've chosen other ones. (laughs) 
when you think about Jesus' day, and, and some of those who try to defend homosexual conduct will say, well, Jesus didn't say anything about it. Well, you know partly why he didn't have to address it? Because that wasn't the issue within Judaism. Judaism hated this sin. So what does Jesus talk to them about? Self-righteousness, all of those things which characterized them. So in a sense, they were saying to themselves, and, and Romans chapter 1 makes that clear, but many other texts, Jews were saying to hell with Gentiles because they do the kinds of things that are in Romans chapter 1. But the reality is people deserve hell because of pride and disregard for his law and greed and all of these other things that the Bible addresses as sin are reprehensible to God. And I'm just saying there is a way in which we as Christians would rather dwell on the evils somebody else is doing than to dwell on the evils that are within us. And when you look at this this Levite's description of what happened, is he not just like us? You know, people say when a police officer pulls you over and gives you a ticket, you know, don't say anything. And the reason is you'll change your story when you think about it. Not because the facts have changed, but all of a sudden you think to yourself, you know, actually, I, I was going 50 miles an hour over the speed limit, but, but you know, there was nobody else on the road, and you, you start sweet-talking your sin. That's really what this Levite is doing. He's minimizing his sin and, and making it something less than what it really was, while he maximizes other people's sin and makes it more than what it really was. We need to really learn about the whole matter of hypocrisy. About the treatment of women, one of the things you see in the book of Judges is as the book progresses, men's attitudes and men's actions toward women get worse and worse. I mean, how much worse can it get than the count that we read at the end of the book of Judges? How much disregard for women can you manage? And my point is this, folks. The gospel of Jesus Christ, and indeed the whole Bible, has women elevated far higher than any other system does. I'm sick and tired of hearing feminists talk about the Bible and about Christians as though we demean and we lower women. Nobody has a higher view or should have a higher view of women than Christians. And you know when Jesus came, one of the things that made him stand out apart from everybody else was Jesus dealt with women that gave them glory and dignity and honor. And that ought to be true for us. That ought to be true in our marriages. That ought to be true in every, every way in which we have contact with women in this body. We ought to honor them and esteem them and protect them and dignify them. That's what the Bible holds up for us. And this text tells us if we don't, then God may deal with us. I want to talk about violence and, and the way in which the body of that, that young uh, concubine was, was uh, dealt with. In my opinion, there's no question in my mind, the scholars love to debate it, but the, 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 there's no question in my mind but what she is dead when, when the body is dealt with as it is. Some would challenge that point. Folks, it was a terrible thing. It was a terrible thing. But every day in our country, living bodies of little babies are dealt with far worse than this one 
body of one dead woman. Boy, let's get off our self-righteous high horses about this text and say to ourselves, what are we doing about it? What are we doing about it? How do we feel about that? Are we, we're sitting by and we're watching, and friends, you and I are going to be reaching into our wallets and paying for it. Now, there's something wrong with that picture, is there not? They don't put me in jail for one thing. They'll get me for this. But i got to tell you, it stinks to high heaven, and God hates it. The violence that we see here is nothing compared to the violence we see in our own day and time. No heroes in this text. (laughs) Not one. They're all rotten. And, you know, that's why I think when you come to this whole statement, there's no king in Israel, and you're saying... How how would a king solve their problems? Here's what I'm going to say about that. Righteousness comes from the top down. Righteousness comes from the top down. It will never come from the bottom up. Righteousness doesn't come from men upward to God. It comes from God downward. Look at Israel's history. When you had a godly king, things were better down below. When you had an ungodly king, things were worth down below. The thing that Israel needs is somebody on the top who is godly. We know it won't be David, ultimately. It won't be Solomon, ultimately. It will only be Jesus. It will only be Jesus. Here's my last statement. His salvation is so much better than anything men could devise How does Israel save Benjamin? How does Israel... That's what chapter 21 is about, isn't it? Saving Benjamin. How does Israel do that? By twisting and distorting their oaths. By twisting and distorting God's word. By orchestrating a situation in which the same level of sin is carried out against Israelite women that was carried out by these... Pagan acting men. Jesus didn't bend the rules to save lost men. Jesus identified with men. He came down from above. He took on humanity. Isn't that the beauty of Christmas? He took on humanity. He lived a sinless life and qualified himself to be the Lamb of God. He laid down his life so that our sins may be forgiven and we may have eternal life. God's salvation is so much better than any half-baked, man-made effort. And he did save Israel. And he has come in the person of Jesus to save us. Father, thank you for this text. It is an ugly text And it is that way because we are ugly in our sin. Help us, Father, not to to double talk, to gild the lily about the evil that is in our fallen hearts. Help us to acknowledge that we are utterly undeserving of your salvation. Thank you that it is by your grace, through the coming of the Lord Jesus, that we are forgiven of our sins and given the gift of eternal life. If anyone is here this morning who has never trusted in him, who has never seen the depth of their own sin, 
who may be focusing on the sins of others, may they see their sin and may they see that the Savior has come to bear that penalty so that they might be forgiven and live in eternity with you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.